Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. The Tudors and the Habsburgs had a complicated relationship, to say the least. We know the connection between Catherine of Aragon and Charles V, but who exactly was the Holy Roman Emperor and what was his empire? In this episode, we take a deeper look into the Holy Roman Empire, its place in 16th century history, and learn about Henry VIII's interest in becoming the emperor. With history, it's important to understand all that was happening around the world to get a good understanding of why these men and women made the choices they made. Today, we take a look at the Holy Roman Empire with one of my favorite historians, Heather R. Darcy. Heather, welcome back to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I want to also welcome back your birds because I'm pretty sure they will make an appearance. Oh, they are they are pumped. I can already see it in their tiny faces. <laughs> they can't wait because today we are going to talk about the Holy Roman Empire. How confusing is that? It's delightful. And my one boy parrot just yawned, just so you're aware. <laughs> That's what he thinks of it. Um, no, I'm actually, I am very happy to talk to you about it because it is a confusing system. It seems somewhat foreign, I suppose, in a way. And uh, the nobility structure is very different from the English or the French or, you know, kind of the more Western edge of Europe. Um, Yeah, I'm very happy to be here to talk to you about it. So let's just, why don't we just start from the beginning and kind of work our way maybe up to the Tudors to kind of set a base for everybody. So let's start with who was the first Holy Roman Emperor? Charlemagne was the first Holy Roman Emperor. He was the first person to have the title as a Roman Emperor since the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. He was crowned Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day, so December 25th of 800, and thus began the Holy Roman Empire. And then it endured for over a thousand years, and I believe it didn't end until after World War I. So there's... The joke that the Holy Roman Empire is neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. Could you tell us more about that? Yes. So it's it's not holy in the sense that the leader is a secular figure. It is not Roman because it doesn't encapsulate a meaningful portion of Italy. And it's not, it's difficult to call it an empire because especially by the time we get to the 16th century and when the Tudors are ruling over in England, it's it's difficult to call it that because it's kind of been what it is for a long time. Um, but what is interesting is right around 1500, the name changes a little bit. So within the Holy Roman Empire, it actually starts to be known as the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. And that's an important distinction. So that's when it really, really starts to take on its, again, German-centric identity. And I'm probably going to dig a little bit deeper into that a little bit later on. 
But one of the people that I think of immediately when I think of emperors is Charles V. And it seemed like it may have been a hereditary claim. Was the succession for the Holy Roman Empire always hereditary? Or how did the Habsburgs come into the picture? The first person who was eligible to become a Holy Roman Emperor, who's also from the Habsburgs, was Albrecht the Magnanimous. And he was elected King of the Romans slash Germans. So that is the same position, King of the Romans or King of the Germans. You see the that person be called different things in different writings, but effectively it's the same person and it's the emperor-elect. But he was the first Habsburg person to be put in that position. And I'll get back to that term elected in a moment. And he, I believe he died young. And so then Friedrich of Habsburg, Maximilian I, dad and Charles V's great-grandfather then becomes king of the Romans Germans and is eventually installed as the Holy Roman Emperor. So it wasn't always guaranteed that if you were the king of the Romans slash Germans that you would become the Holy Roman Emperor, but it was that was anticipated or that you would be the strongest candidate. But you had electors in the imperial system. So there were seven in the 16th century. Eventually that ballooned up to 11 electors, but they held the very important task of electing the next Holy Roman Emperor. And you see the positions start becoming hereditary when Maximilian I becomes Holy Roman Emperor after his father's death in 14, in the early 1490s. I have so many, with so many different directions I want to go next, but let's start with what exactly was the role of the electors and maybe can you give us an example of who some of them may have been. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So the electors were different German nobles who you would have Duke electors and you would have Archbishop electors. electors. So for example, Cologne was an archbishopric and an electorate. So the Archbishop of Cologne was one of the electors of Cologne. So he held kind of a dual position. Probably the most familiar elector to people who are interested in Anna of Cleves is her brother-in-law, Johann Friedrich of Saxony. And whenever the old Holy Roman Emperor died or abdicated, the electors would get together. uh, A pool of people would be created, just people saying, hey, you should elect me. And I believe in 1519, when Maximilian I died, Francis I and possibly also Henry VIII were interested in becoming Holy Roman Emperor. So anybody in Europe could toss their their hat in the ring. And at the time, Johann Friedrich's uncle, Friedrich the Wise, he was encouraged to apply to be the Holy Roman Emperor, but he wasn't terribly interested in it. So then Charles V wound up being elected, but they they literally elected the emperor. And they could be bribed. I mean, of course, on paper, they weren't bribed, but they could be bribed or um, it was a very, very political position. So if they had a strong tie in with the one of the um, the candidates for Holy Roman Emperor, they were more likely to vote for that person. Also, starting again with Friedrich back in the early 15th century, it was always a German person or an Austrian person or a German speaking person, shall we say, who was who became the Holy Roman Emperor. I don't think I realized that Henry VIII and Francis I had an interest in becoming the Holy Roman Emperor, but I guess it makes sense because all of these men just wanted more land, more territory, more power, but they didn't really stand a chance, did they? I don't think so. Not overall, not because they were, they were kind of strangers 
to the territory. That's and again, when you look at a map of the Holy Roman Empire, I mean, it's from this time period, it is it is Germany and portions of Poland that were still considered part of Germany. It's the Low Countries, which are Belgium and the Netherlands today. It's a small portion of Italy. So it's nowhere, I, I suppose it might make some sense for the King of France to try and become the Holy Roman mm -hmm. Emperor, but I don't know why Henry would have. And I wanted to go back and clarify something. Charles V, who was, who did become Holy Roman Emperor, he did speak German, but not very well, but he was a Habsburg, which is a German or actually an Austrian family. You know, I'm looking at a map here of the territory that they would have covered in 1548. It's pretty much most of Western Europe. Is that safe to say? I'd describe it more as Central Europe, but yes. Yeah, so it would make sense. I mean, like you said, right next to France, Francis I could have had a huge chunk of land. When you're looking at this map, you'd go, holy cow, that would be such a huge land mass and such control of that continent that you could see then why Henry VIII would want it to, Absolutely. you know, kind of put that balance of power there a little bit. But you mentioned Germany, and we hear Germany come up time and time again. When did the empire become the main identity for what we think of as Germany? Around 1500. Now, keep in mind, too, that as far as German history goes, the Germany that we think of today didn't formally exist until the 1870s. So in that sense, Germany is a newer country than the United States. I think we forget that because it, it was Prussia at one point, right? Uh, and the northeastern, there was a northeastern segment that was Prussia. Okay. But otherwise, help me understand it was broken up into little bits. Yeah. I mean, overall, within the Holy Roman Empire, particularly in the part that we think of as Germany, there were over 200 uh, dukedoms, bishoprics. Um, I don't, I, I guess you'd say counties. Sorry. Sometimes my brain goes into German. I was going to say, oh, there were Grafschaft and no one's going to know what that means. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> but there were different territories and you see the same thing in England, for example, there's even now it's broken into counties, but each ruler had a different area, but you have this in Germany as well, but there's over 200 of them and they are more autonomous than the counties and the, the areas and the dukedoms in England, for example. So now that you've said that, let's let's talk a bit about the structure of the nobility and um, and how it was different for the empire than it was in England. Can you explain that a little bit more? Absolutely. So in the English system, if you will, you have the king. I'm, I'm just going to stick with the masculine titles for now. You have the king. You have a duke. You have a marquess. You have an earl. Then you have everybody else that's underneath that. I think Baron comes after that and then Knight. Within the Holy Roman Empire, you have the emperor, the emperor's children, who are archdukes and duchesses of Austria. Then you have the king of the Romans slash Germans. And that's actually kind of somewhat in between the archdukes and duchesses and the, and the emperor himself. Um, and then you have actual dukes, but the dukes could also be electors, and so an elector was above a duke. So it would go emperor, king of the Romans, archduke, elector, duke. You would also have archbishops because you had prince bishoprics. Then you would have your counties, your land. I'm trying to think of what the word would be in English. It's So there's a word, there's a couple words that I don't quite know how to translate. So 
The German word for count for a count is a graf, and a grafschaft is a county. And then Cassie's very excited. About I was going to say, okay. she's like peeking her little head off. Anyway, then you have a land a landgraf or a like a territory count. So that's a different type of count. And then you have a markgraf, which is like a count of the marches. So I don't know how to translate that off the top of my head into English, but there's different types of counts depending. And the highest level is the graf, just the plain old count. And then you have, I believe you have the land, the land, land graf, and then the, the wow. mock graf. But so different from the English mm-hmm. nobility. And I'm so I was surprised to hear how high the electors rank. Oh yeah. They are incredibly powerful people and usually very wealthy within the Holy Roman Empire, because they have the power to elect the next Holy Roman Emperor. Sure. Well, if you're being bribed, of course you're going to be wealthy, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of bribery, <laughs> let's yeah. talk a little bit maybe about, you know, Maximilian I and Charles V. And I know the last time you were on, we talked a little bit about Maximilian I. What was his relationship? Let's just recap. What was Maximilian I's relationship with Charles V? He was Charles V's grandfather. So Maximilian I married Mary of Burgundy. And Mary of Burgundy owned a whole bunch of territory, in particularly the Low Countries, which, again, that's Belgium, roughly modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands. And they had Philip and Margaret. They also had a little baby named Francis, but he died. And Philip then marries Juana of Castile, who is, of course, Catherine of Aragon's sister. And Philip and Juana have four girls and two boys. The oldest boy is Charles V, and then the younger boy winds up becoming Ferdinand I. So he winds up becoming Holy Roman Emperor after Charles V abdicates, and we can get a bit more into into why Ferdinand became the next Holy Roman Mm -hmm. Emperor instead of Charles V's son, Philip II of Spain. Before we get to that, I have to backtrack just a bit. Let's talk about Charles V there for a second, because you mentioned who his parents were, his wife. (laughs) Okay. This is where it gets all weird with this family, right? So who was he married to and how were they related? Isabella of Portugal. And I believe who was the daughter of one of his aunts. All right. Hmm. And if not, if not the daughter of an aunt, then like the granddaughter of an aunt, something along those lines. Okay. And and of course, before we started the show today, I did a Wikipedia, which is always a dangerous thing to do. But I thought I saw something about a relationship with Isabella I and Ferdinand. Yeah, so I, they're, that's, they're definitely close cousins. And then also Charles' youngest sibling, Catherine, married Isabella's brother, who was King John of, I think it was King John of Portugal, but one of the kings of Portugal. Oh. They just really like to keep it in the family, didn't they? That that pure bloodline. Yeah, I don't know if it, some of it. I don't know that it was necessarily a purity of bloodline, but it was, or at least not initially. It was more wanting to keep control over territories, hmm. and so with that dual marriage with Portugal, it in effect gave Charles V's children a claim to the throne of Portugal if the male line died out. So there was always a worry, obviously, of lines dying out, but there was also that concern of having the right alliances. So when Charles V married his wife, what alliances did that make? And, you know, what advantage was that for him to marry her? 
as far as I'm aware, it just strengthened the tie with Portugal. And Portugal, of course, was a bit isolated, and it still is isolated on the Iberian Peninsula. And beyond that, she was just very, very wealthy. And he liked money. Because <laughs> remember, he had previously been engaged to Henry VIII's daughter, Mary, oh, and also right. Henry VIII's older sister, or excuse me, younger sister, also named Mary. Didn't wind up marrying either one of them for various reasons, but he part of the reason he married Isabella was she just had a lot of money and also keeping keeping his back door, shall we say, safe probably was a good idea. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. So I get confused, so correct me because I want to make sure I understand all of this. Charles V was also the King of Spain, correct? Yes. Okay, and his wife then brought him Portugal. So they have that whole area there. So it's just basically... Portugal, Spain, and then you have France on its own, and then you have that whole central Europe is his as well. So he really did have a huge chunk of land. Oh, it was crazy. Yes. And I wanted to say one thing about Charles being king of Spain. One thing I really don't like about Charles is his poor mother, Juana, was holed up her whole, pretty much her whole adult life, or at least since I think maybe 1518 or so, 1516 to 1518. She was the titular queen of Spain, but she wasn't allowed to do anything. And Charles was declared king when he was quite young. And she didn't die until the 1550s. She lived well into her 70s. Mm, poor Juana. Yeah. I feel so sorry for her. You know, the, the curse of being a woman, I guess, in the 16th century. It's something. Um, but yeah, so, so yes, he was the, the king of Spain. He had an alliance with Portugal because of the double marriage that he had with Isabella and then the marriage between Charles' sister Catherine and the prince that later king of Portugal and all of the things that he inherited through his father, Maximilian, the, or excuse me, grandfather, Maximilian I, and his father, Philip von Habsburg, that had been Mary of Burgundy's because she owned a massive amount of land and that land all passed to her son, Philip, after she died. I mean, Maximilian I was in charge of it, and then it was, and then it became Philip's, and then it became Charles V's, but it was a really, really huge landmass. And it was dangerous politically to France and to England, because in right. theory, first of all, you have all that territory from which to pull troops, and secondly, they could very easily attack either one of those kingdoms mm -hmm. and pose a real danger. So here's something that I'm curious about, because as we've talked about, Charles V at this time clearly held far more territory than either England or France. And as we've seen at times, even Henry VIII had a hard time overseeing and controlling all of England. What would you say were the biggest issues that came up for Charles during this time because of all of these little, I'm just going to call them countries or territories within the empire were there any uprisings or anything against him at the time that he had to try to control? Did he have any issues like that? Oh, yeah. And this is where I tend to talk more about Germany because that's what I focus on as far as history is concerned. 
you see the peasants revolt in 1526 and it was all these peasants in southwestern germany and then kind of swept over to the east into bavaria which of course is close to what is now modern austria and that wasn't quite an overt revolt against the holy roman empire but there was an element of it it was they were using some of the teachings of martin luther who who actually objected to them using his teachings as an element for rebellion and you had different dukes and other members of the nobility who were trying to convert to lutheranism and at the time I think you and I've talked about this before, but we have to keep in mind that Catholicism and Lutheranism were not just religious movements or religious affiliations. They were also political in this time period. So if you were anti-Catholic, you were anti-Charles V and anti-Holy Roman Empire. And that was a serious danger for him because it, by you have the, the emperor who gets his power, shall we say, from the Pope, who then, of course, gets his power from God. Well, if you don't believe in the Pope, then you kind of don't believe in the emperor. So he had a, a very, very difficult time overall, in a very broad sense, keeping control of his territories. When his wife, Isabella, was still alive, he frequently would leave her as regent. His younger brother, Ferdinand, lived in Bohemia. And it's actually from Ferdinand that we really start to see the web of Habsburg power grow, because I think that he and his wife had 17 children and something like 12 or 13 of them married and had their own children. Oh, wow. um, yeah. But so then you have Ferdinand who is kind of on the Eastern edge of the kingdom in Bohemia and the seat for Bohemia was Prague, which is now in the Czech Republic. But at the time it was considered German and the oldest German university is actually in the Czech Republic in Prague. But anyway, and he, and Ferdinand would frequently show up to Imperial diets and so on and so forth on behalf of his brother, Charles V. And then you also have the Turkish threat, which is coming in from the Eastern edge. So Charles V was constantly on the move. He was constantly putting down, if not rebellions and some sort of aggressive action, either within his territories or coming from, Turk from, the, from the Turkish threat, from the Ottoman Empire. So he was a very, very busy, busy man. So how did he have time during all the stuff that was happening with Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon? How did he have time to even be considered a threat to England at that time if he's so busy with all these other infightings? Because he could order his minions, if you will, to go do things. Ah, yes, his minions. And I think that I think the more threatening aspect was that they didn't know if he was going to do it. And so if Charles V did decide to attack England, he could have assembled one heck of a big force pretty fast just because he had access to so many resources. And he could have, in effect, he could have performed a pincher move just from looking at a map by bringing in people across the North Sea and then up from Spain by boat if he wanted to. I mean, we saw his son Philip II try to do that to Elizabeth I and lose quite painfully with the, the Spanish Armada. But there were a lot of things that Charles V could have done just because he had access to so many resources in such a profound way. Right. And when he took, he got control of the Pope in 1527, somewhat by dumb luck. I think the his, historians are divided on whether Charles sent his armies into Rome yeah. to topple it and capture the Pope or okay. whether that was a bit of dumb luck. I don't, uh, now I want, this is something I wanted to ask you about. So I want yeah. you to go into a little bit of detail here because, you know, 
When we think about the Tudor era, we always think about Henry VIII, Francis I, and Charles V, really. Now, all three of them were loyal to the the Pope in 1527, really, um, mm-hmm. until Henry split from Rome in the 1530s. Why on earth did the sack of Rome happen? Because it seems like such a contradiction. If Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor... How did this all come about? Why was Rome sacked, and why was Charles V involved in this? Well, he had failed to pay his troops. So in in Germany, you'd have your local lord who would have their small local army, but then you would have these bands of professional mercenaries, and those are very common on the continent. You'd have, I think the, the Swiss Guard were, were popular. There was a Spanish force I can't remember the name of. There was a condottiere in Italian-speaking areas, and then you have... The Landsknechte, which literally translated from German means servants of the land or servants of the country, but it's frequently transliterated into Lance Knights. They're not Lance Knights, they're servants of the land, but it's just that's the way it's translated for whatever reason. So you have the Landsknechte, and they were soldiers for hire. And the in 1527, there was some battling going on, I believe, between the French and the Holy Roman Empire over territories that they both said that they had claimed to off the top of my head. I don't quite remember why they got as far South as Rome, but the problem was Charles V hadn't been paying them. So you have these professional soldiers who are not getting their money, who are hungry and Rome's right there. And there's food and lots of money in Rome. Cause that's where the Pope is. So they go and they attack Rome. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. That is where all the money is. But I had no idea, really, that that was the reason why it happened. I just kept thinking, why on earth would the Empire be involved in this? Yeah, and but then, again, like I was saying before, that's where it comes back to, were they really just mad and they attacked Rome and Charles V got lucky? Or was that the PC version of the story so that he didn't get in trouble for capturing the Pope. Because as you so rightly pointed out, why would the Holy Roman Emperor want to attack and capture the Pope? Right. (laughs) But it was terribly convenient that he had custody of the Pope during the time that Henry VIII was trying to divorce, well, not divorce, but his marriage to his aunt annulled. Very convenient. Yeah, very convenient. And it was so dangerous for Henry VIII at that time to split from Rome, you know, in the 1530s, not long after the sack of Rome, just because of the power of Rome itself and the size of the empire had, you know, they decided to fight back for it. England would have been in a world of hurts. Yeah. And rest her soul. I think it was, I think both sides probably heaved a heavy sigh of relief when Catherine Barragon actually passed away because that removed the reason for Charles V. Not the entire reason, because of course there's still Princess Mary, but for the most part, it removed a lot of the tension, I think, between the Holy Roman Empire and England. Yeah, yeah. Poor Mary, too. That that whole Her whole life is just such a sad one. And it's one that I'm looking forward to later in the season, touching base on a little bit more, too. So I'm glad we're kind of setting the groundwork for it at this time. Yeah. Now, you mentioned just a little bit ago about the diets. What the heck was a diet? A diet was a meeting of authorities to discuss matters. I'm going to break that down further because that's still a bit vague. You had imperial diets. So that's when you would have the electors and the dukes and really any of the super higher up people come. 
and there were if the holy roman emperor himself were not there he would send a representative and so there were a lot of imperial diets in the early 16th century because of the rise of lutheranism and one of the more famous ones in the early 1520s was when uh charles v actually tried to capture martin luther but martin luther managed to catch wind of what was about to happen and fled and then he was intercepted by frederick the wise who is the uncle of johann friedrich who is the brother-in-law of anna of cleves and kept safe in saxony for a long period of time but so you'd have imperial diets you'd also have local diets so local meetings of the local leaders to decide that just things that had to do with governing a territory so you would have diets for Juli Kleferberg so the United Duchies of Juli Klevesenberg for example where they would get together and discuss legal matters or just whatever the business was of the United Duchies at the time so overall a diet is a meeting of government officials you had imperial diets which are the Reichstag and then you would have the the localized diets, and I believe that was just called the Landtag. That's what they were. Hmm. I'm trying to wrap my brain around this. Like, how would you compare that to England? What would they have called something like that in England? Just a meeting? <laughs> I think it's almost like a meeting of parliament, maybe. Okay. Okay. That I would makes... think because um, because we can't. It's not a direct. It's not a direct analog for it, but I guess it would be a meeting of parliament versus a meeting of a duke with his local administrators okay so the emperor didn't have anything to do with these these were just localized meetings maybe no there are two kinds there was the imperial diets where he absolutely did have something mm. to do with it and then there would be the regional diets which he usually didn't have much to do with okay but in the end, it's his empire. So really, I yes. guess he did have something to do with all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the, the ones where, so for example, the Diet of Augsburg in the 1550s was a big deal one because that's where you have the, the I believe it's the Peace of Augsburg, but where they kind of settled on not religious neutrality, but they agreed to kind of chill out a little bit with persecuting German rulers who wanted to adopt Lutheranism. Okay. But that, for example, was an imperial diet because that that was a matter that affected the entire empire versus the Dukes of Cleves and the counselors getting together and trying to figure out should they raise the taxes on the Rhine River. And and I think it's just so important to ask these questions because even though I studied the Tudors and most of the people who listen know the most about the Tudors or listen about the Tudors, It's important to understand what was happening in other countries at this time and how things worked, because really, with history, it's the big picture. Yes, absolutely. You need to understand all the pieces. You know, if you live in the U.S., let's say you live in, I don't know, I'm just going to pick a random state, Texas. You live in Texas. Well, yes, Texas has its own government, but then you also have the broader United States as a whole, and you're part of that as well. So it's just an interesting comparison to kind of get an idea of how it all kind of plays out. That actually comparing the different forms of diet in the Holy Roman Empire to the American government is probably a pretty good comparison. And there, I could probably do a better job of comparing or trying to sort how to compare the Holy Roman Empire to the English governmental system, but I'm just not as familiar with it. But it's yes, you're absolutely right. It's the same idea. It's okay. Here's our overarching issue for the whole of the, of the land 
territory. And then here's our issue, like our local regional issue that we need to talk about. So, right. Well, hopefully that conversation that we just had right there will (laughs) put it into perspective for those of us who didn't quite understand it before this. Yeah. Now I want to circle back to Mary a little bit because we know that she married Philip II and Philip II was the son of Charles V, right? Yes. Okay, just make sure I don't get confused here. You're fine. Why did Philip not become an emperor? Because Charles had promised it to his brother Ferdinand. Also, Philip was born and raised in Spain. And when he, he did wind up becoming Lord of the Netherlands. But whereas Charles was very, very much seen as he, he was sometimes seen as an outsider if it was convenient to view him as an outsider because he was half Spanish. But Charles spoke the local languages. His mannerisms were more what you would expect from someone raised in the low countries, whereas Philip was a straight up foreigner and he spoke Spanish. So it just all- made more sense politically to do it that way. It did, and also then you have the two, it's easier to keep control, I think, over the territories if they were divided up, because Spain is just way too far away from from Central Europe, and Ferdinand was a German speaker, all of his children were German speakers, the majority of the people within the Holy Roman Empire spoke German, I mean, of course, Latin was the main political language, but as far as the actual people go, the language was German, for the most part. So it just made more. And Ferdinand, too, because he was so often the proxy for Charles V, because Charles V was fighting this war and that war and putting down that rebellion and keeping this border safe. The German nobles were used to Ferdinand. Do we know what Philip's reaction was to all of that? I don't think he was happy, but I think the person who was more unhappy was Ferdinand, because at first Charles did want his son to become the next Holy Roman Emperor. But by this point... Ferdinand had already been king of the Romans slash Germans for a very long time, and he was not comfortable with having that ripped away from him. Interesting. That was the other issue was he's Ferdinand had existed as the emperor elect, if you will, for a large portion of his life, had been preparing for that role, and he was just not keen on his little nephew usurping that from him. Was Ferdinand successful as an emperor? Ferdinand, I would say, was successful. He was not Holy Roman Emperor for very long, but even more so than Charles V and Maximilian I, do you see the imperial seat become hereditary through Ferdinand. So after him, his son, Maximilian, became the Holy Roman Emperor of Maximilian II. After Maximilian died, I believe his brother, Rudolf, no, his son Rudolph became Holy Roman Emperor, and then other children of Maximilian II became Holy Roman Emperor. So it's really, 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 I think, in my, I think with Ferdinand that we super duper see that's a very technical term there, super duper, <laughs> see the Holy Roman Empire really becoming a hereditary Habsburg possession, more so than we see it with it going from Friedrich III to. Maximilian to Charles V. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and it looks like they held it until the 18th century. Yes. And there's actually someone alive now who is a Habsburg who lives, I believe, in Austria, or at least owns some territory in Austria, who claims to be the Habsburg heir to the Holy Roman Empire, if it still existed. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, Heather, the thing that we haven't really covered is, why do you know so much about this stuff? Because I study German history. So I know that a lot of people know me because of my book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister. And then, of course, my next book, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings, is coming out next year. But I'm a history historian of German history, or as I like to say, Tudor-adjacent history. So I spend a lot of time reading about not necessarily Charles V directly, but perhaps his shenanigans and the outcomes of those and imperial diets and the German Reformation. And I do, I am interested in Charles V's sisters as well. They were very interesting women. So because I'm a historian of Germany more so than England, I just wind up reading this stuff all the time. And so it did take me quite a long time to really grasp the structure of the Holy Roman Empire. And I think in English literature, it misses the mark a little bit. So sometimes there's not... I think that sometimes it's interpreted that the king of the Romans and the king of the Germans are not the same thing, but they are. <laughs> so there's little discrepancies like that, but it took me a very long time to wrap my mind around this. And I'm hoping that our discussion tonight at least gives people a better idea of what the Holy Roman Empire was and how it functioned. And if they want to learn more about it after listening to this episode, what direction do you want to point them in? Well, I would suggest going to maidensandmanuscripts.com. That is my website. I am going to post an article in tandem with you releasing this podcast that has a bit more information. They can also contact me through my website. I'm always happy to talk to people. If they're interested in reading Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the King's Beloved Sister, there is a lot about imperial politics within that book because as, as we know now, it was due to... Anna's brother Wilhelm not playing nice with the emperor that Henry had to have his marriage to Anna annulled. And so it goes to that end, it goes into the, the issues of imperial politics in the early to mid 16th century. So you can check out that, my book, you can purchase that on Amazon. You can purchase it at Waterstones or Foils or Barnes and Noble, really anywhere where you like to purchase books. It is available as a hardback, a paperback and Kindle. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am on Facebook, but I admit that I am not very active on Facebook. So if you're really wanting to interact with me, Instagram and Twitter are your best bets. On Twitter, I am at HR Darcy History. And then on Instagram, I apparently forgot that I had a middle name. So I'm simply at H Darcy History on Instagram. Also, if you want to see pictures of the cute parrots, you can find all of those on Instagram. They are really cute. <laughs> and tell everybody what their names are again. So I'm a ridiculous person, and I have given each one of my parrots five names. I don't know why. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, Mavius is actually Pontius, Octavius, Mavius, Bracchus, Maximus. Cassia is Cassia, Valentina, Maria, Ignatius, Aurelius. <laughs> and Kai is Virginia, Agashilaus, Decaius. Excuse me, Decaius. I didn't say it right. Morgan Nicolo. So maybe Casey and Kai, or maybe it's Cassia and DeCaios. But yeah, those are my parrot names. That's that's what I did with my life and my choices. Interesting yeah. Heather Bird trivia. <laughs> <laughs> if this ever comes up, if we ever play a trivia, you're yes. going to need to know this. So you better have written this down. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. It, it's very important information. <laughs> Heather, um, thank you so much for coming on the show again. 
Oh, anytime. Thank you for having me. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to my newest patrons, Lucy K, Caroline D, Julie R, Jean Ann L, Taylor, Carrie F, Tiffany Marie D, Hadil M, Deb R, Jennifer T, and Amy R. And if you didn't see the news on social media, any existing patrons as well as new patrons in the month of October will receive exclusive access to a Zoom talk on Anne of Cleves by Anne biographer Heather R. Darcy. Want to hear the truth about Anne? Become a patron before the end of the month. Up next on Ask the Expert, the early years of Anne Boleyn. We'll answer all those burning questions you've had about Anne Boleyn before Henry VIII. Thanks so much for listening. And Jack, put on your pants. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. Tudor's Dynasty.